China's backing for Cambodia is personified by the friendship with the one-time mercurial prince Norodom Sihanouk, who arrived in Peking this weekend. Sihanouk, who has spent the last three years in virtual imprisonment in Phnom Penh, was brought back to take his case in the case of Cambodia to the UN Security Council. He spelled out his position at a Peking news conference. The uh, Russians, the Soviets, the uh, members of the Warsaw Pact and the Vietnamese themselves, they say to the world and to the United Nations that it is not a question of uh, Vietnamese aggression, any Vietnamese aggression or, uh, against uh, Cambodia, but uh, simply a civil war, uh, simply uh, a struggle between the Pol Pot regime and uh, the Cambodian people who suffers. It was an emotional vintage Sihanouk performance. Northern Sihanouk, who has spent more of the last yeah. 10 years in exile than in uh, Cambodia, well, is once again in exile. Concerned about the sovereignty of his nation, and yet finding no place for himself in the tragic events of Cambodia. <laughs> On the 2nd of January, 1978, the Khmer Rouge arrived on Prince Norodom Sihanouk's doorstep. At that time, he was living in a dusty apartment on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. The city was under siege. Over the past few weeks, Democratic Kampuchea's forces had collapsed before the better armed and more experienced People's Army of Vietnam. In the early hours of that morning, a unit of Vietnamese commandos had attempted to abduct the prince. This daring raid had not been successful, but it had certainly gained the attention of Pol Pot. Sihanouk was philosophical and calm, presuming that he had finally outlived his utility. For the past four years, he had been living in gilded captivity as Pol Pot's psychotic revolution had laid waste to his kingdom. Sihanouk was delivered foie gras and French champagne, as the citizens of Democratic Kampuchea perished in astonishing numbers. Eight years earlier, following some prodding from his Chinese sponsors, he had endorsed the Khmer Rouge as the rightful government of an independent Cambodian nation. Now he had been summoned by Pol Pot. For only the second time, Democratic Kampuchea's brutal dictator would meet his king. Sihanouk probably expected to be executed, Instead, he was brought to a well-appointed estate on the outskirts of the abandoned city. In his memoirs, he described Pol Pot as polite, almost shy. Unusually, the dictator insisted on using formal grammatical constructs appropriate for addressing royalty. Pol Pot described the military situation in typically delusional terms. Victory, he said, was imminent. It would take no more than two months to expel the hated Vietnamese. In the meantime, it was necessary to consolidate the regime's diplomatic position. Sihanouk was needed in New York for a session of the United Nations General Assembly. With the assistance of Iang Sari, Pol Pot's far more capable deputy, he would curry favour with the international community 
and shore up the regime's position against these new colonists. His face was necessary. His words were necessary. Sweeteners were offered to him. The prince was told that he would now be able to travel internationally as he saw fit, something that had been repeatedly denied to him over the last few years. He could also bring his extended family. Without giving the matter too much thought, Sihanouk agreed to perform this one last service for the Khmer Rouge regime. Challenging Pol Pot's interpretation of the war's progress was a suicidal undertaking, even for those at the very top of the food chain. Despite this, key members of the Central Committee had a more pragmatic understanding of the situation. Yang Sari knew that Sihanouk was a useful figurehead. Those Vietnamese commandos had not actually been sent to kill him. Their instructions were to abduct him, transport him over the border, and establish him as the head of a new Cambodian government in opposition. The two men, along with their families and entourages, were to leave Phnom Penh Airport for New York in just four days, on the 6th of January. In a later interview, Sihanouk remembered feelings of reservation about this plan. Surely, with the noose tightening, escape in this fashion would not be possible. I prepared two bags, he said. One suitcase had business suits for New York, and another backpack was stuffed with tin goods, khaki shirts, and the Ho Chi Minh sandals. One bag was for Fifth Avenue and the UN General Assembly. The other was for the jungles of eastern Cambodia, supplies for a long guerrilla war to be waged against Democratic Kampuchea's new occupiers. Which would be needed remained to be seen. My name is Chris Bardsley. You are listening to Historical Marginalia, and this is episode two of Vietnam's Vietnam. In a way, the Vietnamese had already won. By the end of 1978, Phnom Penh had fallen. The east of the country was occupied, and those sensitive border areas were largely secure. Most of the Khmer Rouge army had foolishly elected to stand and fight against a far superior force. Others, troublingly, had fled to the east in the face of the advance. This number included most of the Khmer Rouge leadership. With the organisation still very much alive and enjoying the support of their Chinese sponsors, withdrawal was not an option for the Vietnamese. As the months wore on, they settled in to the unfamiliar role of foreign occupiers. Vietnam's intervention in Cambodia had cost it dearly on the international stage. Over the last few months of 1978, the political situation in Southeast Asia had changed dramatically. The invasion had created two diplomatic camps, poisoned relationships and turned former allies into bitter rivals. On the one hand was Vietnam, who had few friends or supporters. Their most notable sponsor was the Soviet Union, and in the main they were contending with aggressive Chinese interference. In the months to come, they would suffer their own invasion from the Chinese. There will be more on that later though. In 79, Vietnam were eager to present their neighbours to the north as a threat to regional stability. Moscow shared Hanoi's antipathy towards the Chinese. Following the normalisation of relations between China and the United States, severe tensions between the two socialist superpowers had been boiling away. Both viewed the situation in Cambodia 
as an important opportunity to make a point. But the support of the Soviets was not enough. The Vietnamese government was seeking further allies in the region. In September of 78, just before the invasion, Vietnamese leader Pham Van Dong had embarked on a tour of courtship. Vietnam, he said, wanted nothing more than to be a good neighbour and to enjoy a peaceful future. He even went so far as to lay a wreath at a memorial for Malaysian soldiers who had perished fighting that country's communist insurgency. The Malaysian government was polite but unimpressed. Previously, the Vietnamese had denounced the ASEAN group, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, as a tool of US imperialism. Now they wanted a treaty of friendship and cooperation. Their respective governments were largely unimpressed and most refused to sign. The Thais, in particular, were suspicious, viewing the Vietnamese incursion as an example of adventurism playing out dangerously close to their own borders. Van Dong grew desperate, even going so far as to instruct his diplomats in Washington to request normalised relations with the United States. At every corner, they were refused. He was frustrated and perplexed. 1978 had been a difficult year for Vietnam on several levels. Destructive monsoon rains had destroyed millions of tonnes of crops. Aid had been cut off from almost every quarter, and famine seemed imminent. The newly liberated South was rife with resentment. There was no time to celebrate victory. The Vietnamese government barely had time to draw a breath. They needed friends desperately, but everywhere they turned, doors were being slammed in their face. The real enemy, of course, was China. Deng Xiaoping, Chairman Mao's successor, was furious with their one-time allies. In the second half of 78, he had been frantically preparing to sabotage any prospect of future peace. These ungrateful people must be punished, he said. We gave them 20 billion of aid, Chinese sweat and blood, and look what happens. Later, Xiaoping admitted that there was a possibility that Phnom Penh would fall. He assured his colleagues in the Politburo that this would not be the end of the war, but the beginning. China would not be subjected to Soviet hegemony, as he termed it, and to ensure this he would take appropriate steps to protect his allies. The first of these steps was ensuring that the enemy was isolated, a largely successful effort. He had the Americans on side for a start. US President Jimmy Carter was enthusiastic about turning China into an ally, seeing a convenient lever against the influence of the USSR. The ASEAN nations proved equally cooperative and denied Vietnam membership. The Thais would not recognise the new Cambodian government and would go on to provide shelter and military aid to the vestiges of the Khmer Rouge close to their border. The only head-scratching came from within. In 1979, Geng Wai the Politburo member for international affairs, wondered where the goalposts lay. What impression shall we create in the eyes of Southeast Asia and the other countries of the world, he wondered. In addition to the failure of building up a united front against Soviet hegemony, we shall become ourselves a hegemonic power. He was ignored, then replaced. China had established a coalition of the vaguely willing and successfully framed the invasion of democratic Kampuchea as an example of basic imperialism. Those doors would remain closed to Vietnam for decades to come.
I'd like to talk for a moment about the type of war that the Vietnamese were compelled to fight in Cambodia because it's very important to understand the style of this conflict. If nothing else, the history of Southeast Asia seems to prove how easy it is to become hopelessly lost when you are trying to suppress an insurgency. Counterinsurgency is warfare at its most complicated. Defeating a well-organised rebel group with support from outsiders is an outrageously complicated and rarely successful undertaking. Every element of a state's ability to project power is drawn upon. The enemy is typically entrenched in the civilian population and denying operational space is necessary. Pressure must be placed on the environment where insurgents operate. They must be dug out with aggressive intelligence gathering and operations to search and destroy. At the same time, though, hearts and minds must be won. Diplomatic and cultural incentives must be offered. You can't just drop bombs. You also need to provide food and build schools. This often means providing aid to the very people that you're fighting. The insurgency must be demonised and isolated, but the occupying power can never forget that elimination of sympathies is usually impossible. Napalm does not change minds. All of this goes far beyond knowing your enemy. T.E. Lawrence attributed his success in aiding the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire to hard study and brain work and concentration, an example at odds with what he denounced as the fundamental crippling incuriousness of many fellow officers who were too much body and too little head. Counterinsurgency is a cerebral business, the most intellectually and psychologically challenging realm of warfare. The end game is nebulous, and the goalposts shrink into the fog of war. Defeating rebels in your own country is beyond challenging, but adventuring abroad to fight one part of a foreign nation on behalf of another part? This is always an ugly business. It blurs lines, confuses purpose, and can shake any country to its core. Most of all, you must always remember why you were there, and what you hope to achieve. Forget that, and you can forget who you are. In the early 1980s, the Vietnamese occupiers found themselves responsible for an incredible mess. Cambodia was a ruined country. The health system was practically non-existent. Intellectuals and educated people of all stripes had been systematically eliminated. The currency had been abolished, and without an immediate replacement, a cashless economy of barter was the only means of commerce. There were no markets and no schools, no postal system. The road network outside the city was in ruins and largely impassable in the wet seasons. A quarter of the population had perished. In many cases, the bodies were still unburied. A famine was taking place in the West. Psychologically, the people they were responsible for had not moved on from the genocide. Finally, with Chinese aid, the remains of the Khmer Rouge were growing in strength by the day. For the most part, the Cambodian people were grateful to their liberators, at least in the beginning. 
Their relief was tempered by scepticism at the long-term goals of this occupation, which remained notably unclear. Under General Lon Nol and the Khmer Rouge, around 500,000 Vietnamese inhabitants of Cambodia had either been expelled or liquidated. Pol Pot had purged the entire eastern zone, viewing it as contaminated by Hanoi support and training. This demographic began to replace itself after the Khmer Rouge was deposed. The Vietnamese government was eager to diplomatically unify Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos as a regional bloc and counterweight to Chinese influence. In 1981, Cambodia's first democratic elections were held. The Khmer Rouge did not participate. The victors were the Campuchian People's Party, many of whom were former Khmer Rouge from the Eastern Zone. The, this party included Hun Sen, who would go on to be elected Prime Minister in 1985. Security was very much in the hands of the Vietnamese military. Some 180,000 troops under the command of celebrated General Le Duc An shielded the new government from its many enemies at home and abroad. In 1985, Le Duc An published an article in the Theoretical Journal of the Vietnamese Army. In this piece, he describes the Cambodian campaign in clear-eyed terms. The Cambodian guerrillas, he wrote, had taken advantage of Thai soil to set up operational bases, open points of entry at the border, and created infiltration corridors to pour forces and weapons inland for guerrilla and sabotage activities, seizing land, controlling the population, building counter-revolutionary forces, and so forth. He acknowledged that the struggle is still long and complicated. The article concludes with a salient warning about the region's future should their efforts fail. For centuries, the three countries shared the same fate as victim of aggression by the Chinese feudalistic forces, imperialism and international reactionaries. Division and annexation has become the law for all wars of aggression by outside forces against the Indochinese peninsula. A strategic and combat alliance constitutes the law of survival and development for each individual country and the three countries as a whole. He finished by claiming that if Phnom Penh fell, Saigon would be next. If the Vietnamese were to fight and die once more for their independence, then it would be on Cambodian soil. The Chinese were furious at the invasion of Cambodia. They had good reason to be. Their proxy, the Khmer Rouge, had been humiliated and deposed. There was now a Vietnamese-backed government in Phnom Penh. All through the peninsula, their influence and friendship was being shucked off. Their response was immediate. I won't go through every detail of the Chinese invasion of northern Vietnam, but I will give you the basic facts. It lasted three weeks and six days between February and March of 1979. The numbers are, as usual, difficult to pin down, but around 20,000 to 30,000 Chinese troops were killed. The Vietnamese suffered a similar number of casualties. The Chinese declared victory after capturing several border provinces and claimed that the road to Hanoi was now open. With that, they withdrew. The reality is that they had been given a fairly serious bloody nose, a predictable outcome when you consider the resume of the People's Army of Vietnam, by the way. 
The Chinese had little intention of being drawn into their own counterinsurgency sinkhole, in my interpretation, so they dusted their hands off, distributed medals, and returned home on the understanding a point had been made. This was a serious misconception. Whatever the outcome on the ground, the Vietnamese were typically unintimidated. Their will to stay the course in Cambodia was not dented, not even slightly. With military force having failed, the Chinese government turned to their considerable reserve of soft power and diplomatic pressure. They had more tools than brute force at their disposal and remained determined to make Vietnam bleed. To this end, they were perfectly happy for their southern neighbours to remain entrenched in an intractable Cambodian campaign. In 1980, Deng Xiaoping candidly explained this approach to Japanese Prime Minister Masayoshi Asahira. It is wise for China, he said, to force the Vietnamese to stay in Kampuchea. That way they will suffer more and more and not be able to extend their hand to Thailand, Malaysia or Singapore. The Chinese were beginning to realise that diplomatic pressure would prove to be a far more effective weapon than conventional warfare. Before we go any further, I'd like to make one thing very clear. The outside world, if it had cared to look, might have known every terrible detail of what the Khmer Rouge had done to the people of Cambodia. By 1980, the Vietnamese had thrown open the doors of the country to Western journalists. The revelations were astonishing. The Khmer Rouge had meticulously archived every detail of the genocide. Word-for-word transcripts of interrogations were available. The S-21 torture prison had notarised receipts for every innocent person they had murdered. There was an entire generation of eyewitness testimony to draw on. These visiting journalists, to their credit, did a remarkable job of bringing this terror to the attention of the outside world. Notable voices include Sidney Schamberg, whose writings would go on to inspire The Killing Fields, a critically acclaimed film released in 1984. John Pilger's harrowing documentary, Cambodia Year One, is also deserving of recognition. These works were noticed. It was very clear that a textbook genocide had taken place. This, of course, begs the question of why. Why did so many Western states refuse to recognise the new Cambodian government as the legitimate rulers of the country? Why was Ieng Sari, the Khmer Rouge's second-in-command, giving speeches to the UN General Assembly as late as 1983? Why would the Americans, of all people, agree to lend tangible support to the remaining elements of the Khmer Rouge? because they did for over a decade. US President Jimmy Carter was perfectly aware of who he was dealing with. He had gone so far as to instruct his diplomats that they were not to shake hands with Khmer Rouge representatives should they pass in the halls of the United Nations. At one point, he had even described the regime as the worst violators of human rights in the world at that time. Despite this, on paper, he would continue to recognise them as the legitimate rulers of the country for some time to come. There are answers to these questions. 
and some of them lay at the feet of the Chinese government. This amazingly malignant determination to bleed Vietnam dry was starting to show results. The West had their own cynical priorities. They supported the Chinese campaign of disinformation, coercion and dishonesty simply because they saw China as a useful friend, a convenient way to provoke the Soviet Union and sow division in the socialist world. Just another uncomfortable necessity in a broader strategy. You can ponder the reasoning all you like, but today it seems indefensible. The Vietnamese government had not expected such a negative reaction from the international community. Most UN member states had voted to condemn the invasion of Cambodia. Due diligence was limited. Many governments, particularly the Americans, seemed to have little stomach for more complicated details from the jungles of Indochina. This condemnation was not nominal either. Much to the delight of the Chinese, it soon became an active campaign of persecution. The United States sanctioned the Vietnamese economy and persuaded many other states to do the same. The Japanese suspended desperately needed aid and warned Vietnam that it would only resume if they withdrew their troops from Cambodia. Many other countries followed suit. Vietnam had been dependent on foreign assistance for decades and this abrupt severing of support plunged the South into famine once again. They were also denied membership of organisations such as the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund and the Asian Development Bank. The ASEAN states would not admit Vietnam until 1996, and each year the Vietnamese were obliged to spend a third of their lean budget on providing security to the new government of Cambodia. Their only friend was the Soviet Union, who insisted in return that they adopt Soviet-style economic management. Unsurprisingly, these policies proved disastrous and further hobnailed the country's recovery. The international community's support for the Khmer Rouge went far beyond the diplomatic realm. In the early 1980s, with the support of the Thai government, the Deng Xiaoping Trail was established through eastern Thailand to funnel arms to the Khmer Rouge and their auxiliaries. In 1985, the CIA provided $12 million of covert support to the movement. US Congress also approved $5 million in food aid. It was later estimated that around 85% of this was sold off on the black market to purchase weapons. USAID began distributing military surplus to Khmer Rouge auxiliaries, reaching a peak of $13 million worth in 1989. A small detachment of British SAS was even dispatched to the jungles to serve as military advisers. The Khmer Rouge, unsurprisingly, were rejuvenated. At the peak of this second wave, in the mid and late 1980s, they counted a standing army of some 40,000 troops. And with this newfound potency, they carried on in typical fashion. Without this support, it's likely that they would have been defeated by the end of 1980. Their renaissance was no accident. They enjoyed the support of some 70 countries as they continued to torture their own country. Now this is something nobody wants to talk about. There is one last question remaining. Why did it take the Americans a full decade to admit that they had been wrong? Wrong on Vietnam and wrong on the Khmer Rouge. 
The evidence, to put it lightly, was overwhelming. There was also nothing that they could hope to gain in Cambodia. The age of base colonialism had drawn to an end. There was nothing practical to secure either. No oil, no diamond mines. The motivations are unclear. Just a recycled instinct, maybe. Something inherited. Make Vietnam bleed. For what? Who knows? To earn a crooked smile from their new friends in Beijing. Apparently that was a good enough incentive to wring another decade of suffering from the Cambodian people. By 1989, the Vietnamese had been in Cambodia for a decade. They released their casualty figures, some 55,000 killed or missing in action. Surprised American newspapers published this statistic, helpfully measuring it against their own pile of war dead. It was not all bad news though. Even under occupation, even while grappling with an implacable insurgency, Cambodia had performed something of a phoenix act. In 1985, Hun Sen had been elected president, a position that he still holds today. He went on to meet with Sihanouk, and in 1988 offered him a role as the nominal head of state. Sihanouk seized the opportunity to switch allegiances once again. Today he can be seen smiling from roundabout structures and mouldy classroom portraits. The Khmer people remain understandably ambivalent about their king, a notable contrast to the Masonic cult of personality his counterpart in Thailand enjoys. In 88, the Vietnamese still had around 100,000 troops in the country. Sensing that a peace settlement was in reach, they gradually began to withdraw their forces. Between 1989 and 91, representatives of the various factions and militias met in Jakarta and Paris to negotiate a peace agreement. The facilitators of this process were the Vietnamese government, with notable assistance from Australia, one of the few countries that had refused to recognise the Khmer Rouge since the early 1980s. It was agreed that an election would be held with the assistance of the United Nations, who would provide security once the last Vietnamese troops had left. In November of 1991, Q Sam Phan, one of the remaining Khmer Rouge leaders, attempted to return to Phnom Penh. He seemed to imagine that he had a right to participate in the upcoming elections. He was met by an angry crowd at the airport. They chased his convoy into the city and cornered him in an office building. He was pelted with rocks, had his car destroyed and was given a severe beating. The mob then attempted to hang him from a ceiling fan, but it collapsed in a shower of mould and neglected plasterboard. He called the Chinese embassy begged them for help, and fled this nation he apparently loved so much with his tail between his legs. And by 1992, the People's Army of Vietnam had withdrawn their conventional forces from the country. Over the next months, around 22,000 UN peacekeepers would arrive from all quarters of the world. For the Vietnamese, it was over. They had been walking the long, crooked road to peace for 46 years. Finally, it had arrived. As a small child, you may have played a simple game with your hands and a lamp. Make a shape 
and see a shifting shadow cast up on the wall. All you need is light, darkness and a certain amount of speculative imagination. Children engage in this pastime all over the world. In certain countries though, shadow puppetry has evolved into a rich cultural tradition. You can see it in Turkey and Thailand, Egypt and India. Some claim that the practice originated in China. Most seem to agree that one nation has refined the art form more than most. I'm talking about Cambodia, of course. In Khmer, they call it Sebek Tom. Sebek Tom puppets are up to three feet tall and made of leather. They're on sticks, not strings. The puppets depict gods and monsters from Cambodia's ancient past. Shiva, Rama and Hanuman, the monkey king. The performances take place on a silk screen, can last for many nights and are accompanied by traditional music. Cambodian shadow puppets are beautiful, intricate and often very valuable. One of the most important performances is the story of the Krishi Shivata or Ocean of Milk. This was an important Hindu myth to the Angkor civilization. You can find a breathtaking representation stretching over the central bas-reliefs of Angkor Wat. The Krishi Shivata is the story of the beginning of time and the creation of the universe. The angels and demons of Hindu cosmology compete to churn the sea of milk and release Amarita, the elixir of life. A tug of war takes place over the body of Naga, the serpent king. It goes on for centuries. The angels and demons eventually put aside their differences and cooperate on the understanding that it is only by working together that success is possible. Both parties know that the peace is temporary. The battle will begin anew once balance has been restored to the universe. The contest, this story tells us, is the balance. Like so many parts of Cambodia's traditional culture, the practice of shadow puppetry was almost erased by the Khmer Rouge. It is estimated that around 90% of practitioners fell victim to the year zero. There has been something of a revival in recent years, although today's masters admit a good deal of the story has been lost forever. As such, performances that previously would have stretched over several nights are abrogated into a parade of disconnected highlights. The audience, mainly Western tourists, is ignorant or indifferent to the missing nuances. It is, after all, a profoundly unfamiliar story. The Vietnamese left a very small monument in Phnom Penh. It stands in one of the parks bordering the Mekong River, not far from Sihanouk's royal palace. It's about two stories high and uses the socialist realist style popularised by the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Several figures are represented. There is a Cambodian soldier and a Vietnamese soldier. There is also a woman and a baby to represent the civilians who perished. I would suggest you visit if you ever get the chance. Don't expect flowers, though. The place gets little attention and less love. Occasionally, attempts have been made to set the thing on fire. In 2007, a grenade was thrown at it. Many of the Vietnamese soldiers who fought in Cambodia were volunteers. 
On their return, they faced an ambivalent reaction. That miserable sticky war was swallowed by the shadow of a far clearer conflict. In 1990, Vietnamese author Nguyen Tan Nan released Away From Home Season, a semi-fictional account of his experiences fighting in Cambodia from 1985 to 1989. At the end of the story, the protagonist attempts to explain a sort of misery that seemed particular to the veterans of this war. The audience of this monologue is a young Cambodian friend who has subjected him to a series of familiar accusations and wondered aloud how so much suffering could ever be justified. This is what he said. We used to wonder for who and for what we were fighting and killing and maybe killed. We could not always answer these questions ourselves. Sometimes we felt our explanations reasonable, and sometimes we felt them quite absurd. You say that if we were really not self-seeking, we would have withdrawn from Cambodia long before that time. You don't know that the war in your country then was not simply a civil war. Cambodia was merely a chessman in the strategic chessboard between two powers, two doctrines competing to take control. So we felt confused then. We weren't like our former generations who held arms to liberate their motherland in the time of resistance against the US Army. We weren't even like the soldiers of the years 1978 to 80. They all absolutely understood the meaning and purpose of their works. For us, things just weren't as clear and simple as that. I have always felt that it is entirely the prerogative of the traumatised to forget what happened or ignore it. That might sound like a strange thing to say. In the West, we seem to operate under the assumption that exercising the past serves some healing purpose. I'm not actually sure if that's the case. Most of our memorials are created by the untouched. In remembering things that we do not experience, we are forced to narrate. Narratives are defined by cause and effect. And even if we do not glorify or mythologize, there is an expectation that we describe what happened and why. That narrative and truth are two different things. There is no plot structure to the history of Vietnam. We have no right to measure our good intentions against the results of our efforts, even if we do find ourselves wanting. We did not suffer like the people of Vietnam and Cambodia suffered. They have not volunteered their dead to serve as a counterweight to Western doctrines of the greater good. Since the Americans left Vietnam, they have continually irradiated the world with their version of events. Films, books, video games, endless documentary features. The last chapter always takes place in 1975. The war is fought again and again through their eyes. And these adventuring idiots are the perfect vehicle to deliver a visceral kick. Toy soldiers dying and killing on the body of Vietnam. The tragedy has mutated into a hideous parody. The privilege of this hijacking is a miserable truth. 
Our innocence did not suffer in this war. Just the young and brave, who were free and eager to die poignant deaths. Broad-shouldered icons that looked perfect in sculpture form. Nobody was cooking their sisters or mothers with napalm. American Marines, Korean mercenaries, Vichy French, Moroccan auxiliaries, Canadian paratroopers, North Korean pilots, Cuban engineers, Malaysian special forces, the British SAS. The list goes on and on and on. It's a Cold War roll call. Everyone wanted a piece of Vietnam. Everyone wanted a drop of blood. All of them left their own dead behind. And for what? I still actually don't know. Was there a Western doctrine in the Cold War? If there was, it is so decayed and punctured that it can barely hold a shape. Maybe the socialist way of doing things was a threat to the human spirit. Maybe defeating the Soviet Union was worth the appalling cost to human life and welfare. Democracy is a better system than fascism. I do believe that. Few sensible people are mourning Mao or Stalin. But the strange, sad truth is that the Cold War actually had very little to do with the Vietnamese struggle. Shadows fell over them, but they were not puppets. They weren't fighting for communism. It was independence they sought. And they did not make their point in Saigon in 1975. The message was not delivered by ramming an APC through the gates of the American embassy as Marines helicoptered off the roof. Independence, national, ideological and moral was established in Cambodia. There was nothing glorious about it. It took over a decade. It cost them terribly. And when Vietnam's Vietnam was over, they had proven us wrong once again. They returned home only when they were satisfied that the Cambodian people could look forward to a secure, peaceful future. They had their own country to build and so many friends to make. The Vietnamese could be forgiven for hating the world. Instead, they shame us with their grace. 18 million tourists visited Vietnam in 2019. Even today, we can't stay away. It's a great place for an adventure, after all. Easy, cheap, the people are friendly, the beer's cold, you can get a visa at the airport. At no point will you be expected to explain the actions of your countrymen. And even in the unlikely event that you were, what on earth could you say? My name is Chris Bardsley. You are listening to Historical Marginalia. And this was episode two of Vietnam's Vietnam. Vietnam.